all right? It, there's a little bit of lag. I don't know if it's on my side or yours, but uh, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Robert Frederick, and he operates the Hidden Life is Best website and podcast. It has excellent reviews, deservedly high reviews, 4.7, 4.8. And we've done two shows on past episodes that he's done research on. The first one was just the general Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. And then we also covered the tragedy of Macbeth. But today we're going to talk about uh, one of the plays that I wasn't as familiar with in the whole Shakespeare corpus, and that is The Tempest. But I've been looking in and just kind of be, uh, in, in awe of the intelligence that is behind these plays. And uh, But I'm glad to have Robert back so he can talk more about that. So Robert Frederick, welcome back to the show. Hello, William. Nice to be back. Thank you. Yeah. So for people who may not have heard our earlier two shows, can you talk about your interest in Francis Bacon and Shakespeare and kind of what led you up to this uh, particular play, The Tempest? Well, I always had an interest in the English Empire as someone trying to understand history. And I just kept sensing their involvement in all the big movements of history of the last few hundred years. And one day, kind of looking into that in regards to Jamestown, uh, I found out that Francis Bacon was involved in the founding of Jamestown, which blew my mind. And then, right at that same time, I had this extraordinary synchronicity, which I will put into my next episode of the podcast, because I've said I'll tell what that synchronicity was. And it was so earth-shattering that I thought, I have to look into Francis Bacon. I've been given a message and changed my life. And I started looking into Francis Bacon and like has happened to quite a few people over the last couple centuries, starting with Delia Bacon in about 1850, you become obsessed with Francis Bacon, some to good and, and some to ill because there's just so much there. And, and every day that I do more research, I'm, I'm astonished at what I'm finding. He seemed to be involved in everything. I just decided to look up the modern corporation and it looked like Francis Bacon was involved in the beginnings of maritime insurance and insurance in general, insuring large voyages. So he was a great legal mind. He was a, he became attorney general of England. Um, he was considered to be, is considered to be the the philosopher of modern science, the beginning of modern science. And he's pointed to as the person who began the enlightenment. So he lived still in kind of a medieval era where they still did jousting and England still was kind of a backwater compared certainly to Italy in terms of the Renaissance, but the Renaissance was starting. And then he began the enlightenment era. That's generally agreed upon. And he is kind of responsible for what we think of as modern science, because directly within 20 years after his death, the Royal Society began after the English Civil War, and they attributed their foundation to Francis Bacon. And that thus began the modern, the era of modern science that has changed the world so much. So he was involved on that level. And uh, he was also William Shakespeare which is mind-blowing. And the, there's, there's literally smoking guns connecting Francis Bacon to Shakespeare. 
I don't want to go into to any of them now. They're on the show. They're well known. Since Delia Bacon, literally hundreds, if not thousands of books have been written about it. There are actual smoking guns. There's a book out by N.B. Coburn, 750 pages that details all the correspondences. It's, it's pretty much undeniable. But we also know that Bacon worked with a stable of writers. That he knew a lot of people, one of whom was Ben Johnson, who seems to be a bit of a genius. I, if I had more time, I would think into Ben Johnson. Extraordinarily brilliant and, and helped solidify his whole Shakespeare hopes. The other thing that Bacon was involved in was that you know, since a young man who was sent to Paris with a diplomat who later stayed in the realm of espionage. So that Bacon was involved in spying and, and kind of the higher level espionage his entire life. And it's definitely why British intelligence became the best in the world. Yeah, wasn't and, it Walsingham was the other guy around Bacon's time? Walsingham was before Bacon and sent Bacon to Paris. Right. So that was it. There's always that rivalry, right? That was always the big French English rivalry. French English rivalry, but I think they overplayed that. I think it I think they were working together and they were in intermarrying and but that's a whole other realm of history. We don't want to get into but that it, time but, was very rich. There's a lot of things going on. King James oh. is working on the King James Bible. It's very like the, the foundations of English literature all happened in a very compressed amount of time. Yeah, right, right. At that time, English was pretty backwards. There were almost no good books written in English. One or two, Thomas More's Utopia. And because of Francis Bacon, a lot of people attribute it to his very first book, The Essays, which is about all he officially did the first 40 years of his life. It's one slim book called The Essays. The language is very modern and concise. And he's considered to have rearranged the English language as Shakespeare. But he did it also as Francis Bacon. And in France, he was involved with this group called the Please Group that were subconsciously attempting to do that to French by digging into Latin and Greek and, and kind of trying to modernize French. Yeah, it's the guest. Thanks, Liz. I didn't know that. I'll just wait for him to come back. <clears throat> it is interesting. I was reading through, I watched some... Uh, informational videos about the tempest today and just so many things pop up i mean for people who haven't seen the tempest the background is and it is interesting that he mentions italy that robert mentioned mentioned italy because a lot of shakespeare's plays are placed in italy so it seems like there is an intention to kind of transport renaissance culture ideas from italy to the u.s so it's what romeo and juliet merchant of venice the tempest julius caesar is there another one? There probably is. I don't even know offhand, but a lot of those came out of Italy. And the story of this is Prospero gets kicked out. He was the Duke of Milan. Gets kicked out. To, uh, shipwrecked. Everybody thinks he dies. He gets shipwrecked. He ends up on an island and starts using magic or used magic. He brought it with his daughter Miranda. So she was three when they were shipwrecked. And then on the island is the literal son of a witch. The witch is Sikorax, but his name is Caliban. And then also uh, kind of a spirit, not a fairy spirit, kind of Ariel. And then it just kind of goes and continues. Like, And then the, the Prospero starts uh, 
another storm to take off some of the people who were his former antagonists, Alonzo and some of these other characters. And so um, there's another shipwreck and uh, yeah, it's kind of like Gilligan, but there's just uh, all the kind of soliloquies and stuff. They talk about magic and his vengeance and what he's trying to do. And it really is kind of an interesting uh, magical world. I guess it would be like Midsummer's dream, a Midsummer's dream, something like that where, that, but there's all kinds of themes going in there. The moon pops up all the time. Dreams, magic. It's very complex. Uh, there's kind of like druggings, the effect of alcohol on people. Um, there's all kinds of like Roman gods, things like that. Yeah, we're going to try to deal with the, the Tempest. But uh, yeah, there's just a lot going on. Um, but it's really is it really is an interesting. An interesting, like, uh, interesting play. Let's see, let me do something here. Um, yeah, I know who Chris Pinto is. Let me put that in the notes. I know Chris Pinto, he does good work. He does a lot of really good work. But um, it isn't just that if you go through the whole thing, it is fascinating. It's almost like you're being initiated. So you see this guy wanting to use magic for power. And also how there's like these magical events where these people, different groups, there's the jester and butler get split off. And then there's plotting, but um, Prospero's trying to know all that stuff. And there's also themes of enslavement. One of the interesting things, just like Robert Frederick mentioned at the intro, is that Francis Bacon was involved in Jamestown. So there is a kind of, colonial theme in this where Prospero kind of takes over and learns all the magic and then becomes the island's kind of head proprietor but uh, really fascinating so like who's who has ideas of authority and autonomy and the people he he has kind of a negative view of Caliban so it's almost kind of like Prospero and Caliban are at odds Caliban, Caliban threatens to kill Prospero and it's almost kind of like Caliban is almost like a template for the natives or something like that the, the English view of natives wherever in their empire I think uh, could be fair so yeah there's a lot of that going on um, but I mean there's just like a lot of interesting themes let's see what else do I have here and Prospero's kind of like a control freak. He wants to know everything, which is interesting. Like he's got his his fingers and everything. He's he's very dominant over his daughter and her relationship to Ferdinand. Um, and you know, there's all kinds of themes. Like there, it's very interesting because it's there's just terms in English that seem to have permeated through kind of ideas of magic. So he's talking about by your art. And buy your stuff, and then he puts away his magic cloak, and it's almost like when he puts away his magic, the people who are surround, who he influenced, their personality changes, and he puts away his magic at the end. And there's like a whole kinds of themes of utopian ideas and things like that that took place. But one of the interesting aspects of this is like the, at the end, Prospero leaves magic, goes back to Italy, I think, becomes the Duke of Milan, and then breaks the fourth wall. So he talks to the audience in the first person, but he says to forgive him for his use of magic, and it becomes a much more kind of confessional thing where the actual character is talking to the audience. And he says, by your clapping, 
you will relieve me from this, uh, you know, my guilt for using magic on people. So it is kind of, it, you clearly are seeing like a magical practitioner or whatever taking place. Um, but yeah, so, man, just what else is there? Like they keep saying the foul witch, the Korak. So there's also, and this was a time of witchcraft, like I mentioned earlier. King James Bible was being formulated at this time, but King, but King James also wrote a book on the about witchcraft. Like he thought his life was influenced by witches. Like he had that kind of not a magical worldview, but like uh, that this witchcraft stuff. So there was all kinds of witch hunting going on. There was got one book he wrote. I think it's on witchcraft or something, which is still in old English. But he believed his life was done uh, was was influenced by that. Um, so I don't know when the guest is going to come back, but we may have to just reschedule. Mike, Mike. So I wasn't even hearing him anyway, but Robert, you can go look at Robert's stuff. I'll put it in the show notes. I think he's on seven full researched episodes on the hidden life is best. Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English empire. And I'm definitely, I'm not even like a person like people, Baconians, who wrote Shakespeare. I don't believe that Shakespeare even existed. I think he was a front for an intellect, kind of like the invisible college. So Bacon was the, maybe the center guy who was directing the creation of the folio, Shakespeare's folio, amongst with other known writers and kept it a secret to like enrich the English language and people. I don't think it's a surprise that the Elizabethan theater was called the Globe. And, you know, the, there's all kinds of Masonic stuff in some of these plays. I think The Tempest was one of the last plays in the folio, Shakespeare folio. So this was the last one to go in. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about some of that bad audio. I apologize for that. Robert found out while we were doing the interview that somebody was working on his internet without giving him notification so we postponed and restarted so this is the second part with much better audio and uh, we run about 50 minutes here so my apologies so part two coming right up okay we're live hi this is william ramsey welcome to william ramsey investigates on today's show i have a very special guest returning guest we tried to finish the entirety of uh great inquiry into a very important piece of Francis Bacon's literature, known as Shakespeare, called The Tempest, which I watched the movie. I mean, I watched the full play, read the play, read an analysis of the play, and then listened to the analysis by Robert Frederick. So this will be part two. Go back and listen to part one if you're on YouTube. If not, I will take this out and I will splice the first part and this part together for the podcast. You probably won't hear this intro. So we're not going to go back and do all of the introductory material that we did last week. So Robert's just going to go right into it. So Robert, Frederick, welcome back to the show. Hello, William. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Man. Um, I'll just review quickly Bacon, who was involved in redoing the English language. He was one of the greatest lawyers of all time in common law in England. He helped end the usury laws. So he kind of was there at the beginning of capitalism, especially when you consider he was involved with Jamestown. I recently found out that he started the insurance industry. He was involved in espionage uh, and spying his entire life. He made major inroads into cryptography and hidden messages. 
he's known as the father of science as a philosopher, where he helped bring about the use of inductive reasoning as opposed to deductive reasoning, wrote a lot about learning, memory, uh, very interested in life extension, medicine and plants, gardening. Uh, it's overwhelming evidence that he was William Shakespeare, along with probably some other writers. That's not real clear, but he was absolutely definitely involved. There are smoking guns attesting to that much more than for anyone else. And I think he was head of a group of writers. And there's quite a few other researchers that believe the same thing. Uh, these are all huge topics of inquiry. And the, uh, the big one is also that he seems to have created modern Freemasonry, which is very theatrical and initiatory. And a lot of people have him pegged as the guy that turned what was left of the Templars into the Freemasons, uh, kind of using this Rosicrucian philosophy. And Rosicrucianism is another huge topic um, that is mythical and occurred right in the middle of Bacon's career and, and represents a lot of Bacon's ideas turned into kind of a theatrical, mythical context. It's also science-y. So it all kind of ties together uh, with, with itself and with, in my opinion, the creation of the British Empire. Right. I mean, he was in during heady times. You mentioned Don, John D in your inquiry, which this yeah. court magician. And then you have this yeah. character, Prospero and the Tempest. Yeah. Um, really so fascinating. Overlays. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. There's multiple levels of fascination here. Um, and so the, one of the big ones is the occult. And John D is central to the Rosicrucians. That's agreed to by this well-known researcher named Francis Yates a woman who was employed by the Warburg Institute to research Renaissance England and came up with some great books. The Occult in Renaissance England is one. Uh, the Story of Giordano Bruno. And uh, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment is the big one where you can actually read the, the Rosicrucian pamphlets that came out in Germany. Uh, and it's very clear she even has to admit that it looks like Francis Bacon played a big role here because of his book, The New Atlantis, which is extremely Rosicrucian in its setup. And he kind of has a utopian community called The New Atlantis. It's a very short book. It's his most popular book. It's getting a lot of attention recently. I'm going to have a guest on who's a kind of an expert in The New Atlantis. Hmm. And it's very Rosicrucian. And it's kind of odd that he did it because he kind of gives a lot away right there. He doesn't stay very well hidden. It's so Rosicrucian. And, and at the time, there was no Freemasonry. But now we know a lot about Freemasonry. And Freemasonry calls themselves the Sons of Light. And the book ends, the New Atlantis ends where the, the lead character says, mainly what we are looking for is light. And it's pretty obvious to everyone what he's talking about there. And so you, a lot, a lot you include in your research on your website the empire and Freemasonry, how yeah. an integral part yeah. of the modern empire, that's a theme of yours, was was relying upon Freemasonic stuff. And actually, all the, like you said, all of the 
royalty are Freemasons. The head of Freemasonry, I think, is the Duke of York, yeah. Yeah. if I remember correctly. And every single uh, prime minister has been a Mason. And uh, there's actually a kind of a, just as an aside, there's a famous picture of Winston Churchill when he went to the Boer War. And he was making, there's a picture of him making the free, Freemasonic sign of hailing in trouble. He's actually making the sign of yeah. the square with his feet. And he mysteriously got out of prison there. And uh, people people um, have attributed that to the influence of Freemasonry. Sorry about that. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'll send you that picture. Oh, that'd there's, be great. He's clearly making a Masonic gesture. Clearly. <laughs> Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, it's an incredible organization and the structure of Freemasonry is incredible. It's just another huge topic. You know, thousands and thousands of books have been written about Freemasonry. There's thousands of lodges in the United States, or there used to be. And as I repeatedly say, most people don't know anything at all about it, but it's everywhere in our midst. Especially when you learn the symbolism of Freemasonry and you start to see it everywhere, especially in corporate logos, or just pretty much everywhere. They're of course, they grabbed so many symbols. They, they sort of made so many things theirs, as the Gnostics did, you know, 2,000 years ago, when just kind of grabbing everything of significance in religion and, and trying to make it work for themselves. The Masons do that as well. Um, Check out this picture. Let me see if I can find it. There it is. This is the picture of Churchill. I'm pretty sure this is the sign of, like, Freemasonic healing. You ever seen this before? I know. And they claim it. He was outwitted the Boers with, with chocolates and good manners, but <laughs> this is him making making this like sign of a square right there. Oh, yeah. Street. Yeah. That's a sign of a mason. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, there's no other stories like that. There's stories of like that of from the Civil War, um, mm -hmm. from the Revolutionary War, prisoners being let go and they make Masonic hand, uh, signs. Yeah, I've heard the same thing with Masons. Masons know a lot of Masonic hand signs and things like that. Uh, Mormons do, and so they make it to each other anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed so, to release a Mason unless for murder, I think, or treason. Any other crimes, you're supposed to let a Mason go, a brother Mason. That's your higher right loyalty is to the Mason. Right, and all these, the Mormons have a very predominant name, Hiram. Like, Hiram is... is Interwoven through so many people are like you mentioned Hiram Biff in your yeah. talk, yeah. but and Joseph Smith made a Masonic cry. Has nobody any sympathy for the widow's son or something? He mentions the widow's son right before he got shot. But it, yeah, it, Joseph it Smith was a Freemason, and the yeah. Mormon religion is based on Freemasonry. Yeah, absolutely, and the, the inner structure is still Freemasonic. And it works. It's it's something got figured out by Bacon. We'll that, help the poor widow's son. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is there no help for a poor widow's son? Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's all goes back through Bacon, right? I mean, and he's taking this is taking place. He's with Jamestown, so the the New Atlantis overlaps with the kind of New World, right? Yeah. So people think Bacon meant for America to be the New Atlantis. But the Tempest is fascinating because it is definitely the last play written. And it's one of the very few Shakespeare plays that can be specifically dated to the year it was written, which was 1610, because it contains direct references to Jamestown. 
and a shipwreck that, that happened on the way to Jamestown and a terrible tempest in the shipwreck and the ship wound up in the Bermudas and the occupants of the ship found themselves on an uninhabited island and there was a rebellion and there was problems but they actually put the ship back together or made it into two ships and made it up to Jamestown by 1610. And things were a mess, and a letter got written back to London by this man named Strachey with references to the shipwreck, references to what was happening in Jamestown. And there are direct references in the play The Tempest to this letter and to what happened in the Bermudas. So it's indisputable, it's mainstream scholarship, that The Tempest is about the wreck of the sea venture and partially about the founding of Jamestown or about c colonialism, for instance. And uh, it's, it's the last play Shakespeare wrote. That's another definite Shakespeare scholarship because Shakespeare supposedly retired in 1610 and went back to Stratford. He died six years later. And they know when the play was first performed, which is in 1611 for King James. Uh, so that's, none of that's in dispute. And it's the last play, but it's the first play in the first folio, which is the famous book of Shakespeare plays, 36 plays that came out in 1623, uh, seven years after Shakespeare died, uh, but three years before Bacon died. And this is the book that created the myth of William Shakespeare of Stratford of Avon, Stratford upon Avon. It's a remarkable book. It's considered, I just saw this in Wikipedia the other day, considered to be one of the most influential books of all time. They printed about 500 copies. There's about 300 left. And Shakespeare researchers and Bacon researchers uh, pour through it for hidden meanings and subtexts. And there's just tons of information in it. Anyone interested, there's a great YouTube video called Cracking the Shakespeare Code where a Shakespeare scholar and a Freemason kind of debate the meaning of the first folio. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic documentary. Uh, I urge everyone to watch it if you're interested in this subject. And as for The Tempest, um, it's not a very good play. It's kind of Disney-esque, and there's a pretty princess who marries the handsome prince, and and there are these kind of conflicts that quickly get resolved, but there's no real depth of character. There's no real exploration of, you know, human motives. It's not, it's not really very Shakespearean. And Prospero, the lead character, has this, this overwhelming magic power. He can kind of just do anything with his magic power. So it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like a kid's story. But so what scholars have done is they've considered that Prospero really was Shakespeare as a playwright who can kind of imagine anything. Or they consider Prospero to be John Dee, who was known to be a conjurer and a magician. But magic was really still big in Shakespeare's time. And a lot of it was from alchemy. But magical practice had kind of come back in, in a mainstream way through Renaissance Italy and the uh, Hermetica and some of the um, ancient texts that had come to light that were being studied. And there were magicians like Cornelius Agrippa, Giordano Bruno, and his kind of magical 
practices and the Christian Kabbalah and the Jewish Kabbalah, which uses magic. So it all had kind of come together. And Bacon was definitely involved with it. There were quite a few people involved with it. And what happened was this guy named Colin Still wrote a book in the 20s, kind of based off some earlier research by W.F.C. Wigston. Wigston's book is called Bacon, Shakespeare, and the Rosicrucians. And Colin Still's book is called Shakespeare's Mystery Play, A Study of the Tempest. And Colin Still goes through the play line by line and shows how, based on many books on initiation of the, from the ancient mystery schools, how the play was actually an allegory of initiation into a mystery school. And it's just mind-blowing because it, it just shows how the occult was central to Bacon and the Shakespeare mythos. And it's kind of hard to go into it in detail. I promised to do a podcast on it. It's kind of tedious to go through the book and point out how it's hidden within the play. But I'm going to do it. I promised to do it. But some of the bigger ones are that in the, it's based on the Eleusinian Mystery School, which is the, the famous mystery school in Athens that existed for 1,400 years. And I think at one time was a very positive force for society. But I think initiation changed over the centuries, especially after Gnosticism reared its ugly head around the time of the birth of Christ. Where and you mentioned that Aristotle and Plato were both initiates into the Eleusinian mysteries, right? Yeah, Plato definitely was. I'm not sure about Aristotle, probably. Socrates, interestingly Interesting. enough, was not. But I have to look up about Aristotle. Plato was, they, they considered it to be a positive influence. It probably was in many respects. But I think it changed very gradually and slowly because Plato was, uh, what, 350, 400 BC. So by the time of the Gnostics was 400 years later and a lot of changes had happened. A lot of uh, religious ideas kind of coalesced and something happened around the birth of Christ, you know, that I'm working on some ideas about and how Gnosticism sprang up. But Gnosticism's core idea is that the world is made by an evil god called the Demiurge, and that the world is essentially a prison, which no other religion had ever really said that before. That was a rare new idea in religion. And I think it corresponds with Jesus kind of new ideas in religion of turn the other cheek. You know, if, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. This kind of absolute pacifism corresponding to this antinomianism, which is a rejection of all normal religious commands, which is what characterizes a lot of Gnosticism. There were uh, some Gnostic sects that were ascetic, and believe in just kind of simple rejection of the world and you know, simple diets and, and celibacy. But a lot of them were the opposite take where, you know, let's just ignore everything or there are, there are no rules. Do what thou wilt kind of thing, which continued to grow. As you Interesting know. you say do, do what thou wilt because yeah. Crowley tried to res resurrect yeah. the rights of Eleusis. So he did that 20, there's pictures of him performing what he called the rights of Eleusis. And the Gnostic Mass, Crowley did. Yes, and, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it all kind of ties together. And, of course, Colin Still is not opposed to any of this. He's just pointing out 
that the tempest is very clearly uh, an allegory of initiation. And a few of the bigger ones of that are at the, the rites of Eleusis, the, the aspirants wandered around recreating Demeter's wanderings, the mother of Persephone, who was abducted by Hades and taken underground. And she wandered in search of Persephone for, for months. And that's recreated at Eleusis where the aspirants wander. And it's recreated in the play, The Tempest, where uh, the court party is wandering around looking for one of their lost uh, members, Ferdinand. So there's this wandering and wandering. There's also the dunk in the ocean at the uh, initiation at Eleusis. Everybody had to dunk in the ocean. And that's kind of how the Tempest starts, where everybody gets, gets dunked in the ocean. And there's kind of a, a baptism as a ritual, a ritual cleansing. And there's a whole bunch. It's just dozens and dozens. One is Ferdinand uh, is put on a Spartan diet of roots and leaves, which is what the aspirants at Eleusis were put on if they're going for the greater initiation, the highest level initiation. So I think, uh, you know, Bacon knew exactly what happened at the initiations, which, which has been still kept hidden. A lot of it is known, but what actually happened when the aspirants went inside the temple for the final phase of the initiation has been kept a secret. And it's thought that it involved taking of drugs, which is alluded to in the Tempest, as Colin still takes, points out, and that people become confused and their brains get boiled. That's a quote from the Tempest. Doesn't, doesn't Caliban get some drunk drink and then oh, Caliban God and or something? Stefano yeah. and Stefano, well, that's just the thing, uh, is on, 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 uh, on the sea venture in Bermuda, a man named Stephen Hopkins led a rebellion and tried to say, hey, we're not in England anymore. We don't have to listen to these uh, aristocrats bossing us around. He tried to lead a rebellion and it got put down and he nearly lost his life. So, but Bacon hated rebellions. He called anyone who leads a rebellion scum, scum of the earth. So he put Steph, Stephen Hopkins as Stefano in the Tempest and Stefano is a drunk and he's got booze and he corrupts Caliban with booze, which, hey, happens, you know, in the Americas. And their, their third party uh, is a clown, a literal clown, Trinculo. So there's a clown, a drunk, and uh, I mean, Caliban is kind of presented as almost half animal. It's really kind of disgusting on some levels. I guess there's other ways to look at it, but he's called slave by Prospero, and he's used as a slave by Prospero. So there's all treated, these treated harshly too, right? Like treated, kind of, uh, treated harshly, though set free at the end or something. I don't know. There's so many ways to look at it, but yeah, treated very harshly and insulted, and um, kind of shown to be almost like half animal, uh, stupid, smelly. It's it's uh, and that's this has been pointed out by by plenty of people, and it's kind of ugly ugly stuff but so so but but bacon gets revenge on stephen hopkins for leading a rebellion in the bermudas and stephen hopkins is a fascinating character because he went back to london and then wound up at plymouth he's the only person who was at jamestown and plymouth oh, yeah a really really interesting character so yeah there's so many 
ways to look at the Tempest uh, because it was also key to the Shakespeare myth and that it was placed first in the first folio, that it involves Jamestown and that it involved that letter that Strachey wrote home. There's a famous letter Strachey, this guy named Strachey wrote home about what had happened on the sea venture, what was going on in Jamestown. And the, the board of governors of the Virginia corporation that settled Jamestown had this letter and it just directly got translated into the play, The Tempest. On my website, I'll put a link to a, to a good article that just delineates every single reference. So anyone on the board of the Virginia colony that had read that letter would have recognized that letter as being part of the play and recognized that The Tempest is actually about the colonization scheme of Jamestown. And it was sort of like a cheerleading effort. It just showed like the potential like with initiation and, you know, and uh, confidence, you know, Jamestown would succeed because it was definitely a dicey question at that point. Right. Um, there was a lot, a lot going on. It nearly failed, just like the Roanoke colony failed that, uh, that Walter Raleigh had carried out, I think, in the 1580s. So this was really the second attempt, and they were desperate for it to succeed. So in a sense, the Tempest was was cheerleading the Jamestown colony and cheerleading the colonization scheme in general using initiation because any Masons or any initiates would have recognized the initiate formula inside the play too. So it was kind of a bonding mechanism. And then it was used in the first folio and the first folio, that famous book created the myth of uh, William Shakespeare of Stratford on, upon Avon as coming to London and becoming the greatest writer in the world, this, you know, country bumpkin. That right, first no folio, records. yes, started that entire myth, which I'm contending is the founding myth of the English empire, that anybody, you know, anyone can be a star, anyone can make it, you know, right. look how great Shakespeare is, but also this idea that Shakespeare was some kind of great positive influence on humanity that anytime you consider England, you just start to think about Shakespeare. It just seems automatic. And that you associate Shakespeare with greatness and great writing and, and humanism and positivity. But actually, that's not true at all. If you really look at Shakespeare with fresh eyes, as I did, not having read him much, when you come into it, you know, with some knowledge of how the world really works, you're like, well, there it all is. It's actually very aristocratic. It's, uh, it's top-down uh, authoritarianism. It's mocking of the commoners. I mean, there are no decent common people in Shakespeare. I mean, maybe there's one Falstaff, but he's not too decent. He's kind of a clown. And it's this kind of worship of royalty, worship of aristocracy. The aristocracy will solve all our problems. <laughs> no, it really is. Even this, this play has that theme. They yeah. like uh, Prospero divides people up by class. Yeah, There's like absolutely. a class theme, yeah. The, uh, the commoners are not allowed to be initiated. Stephen, Stefano, Trinculo, and Caliban are not initiated. So the royal court are lesser initiated, according to Colin Still. And Ferdinand the prince is given the full initiation and marries Miranda 
in which they which he calls the uh the, the sacred marriage with the celestial bride and it all kind of fits in with the symbolism from the eleusinian mysteries very clearly laid out in Colin still very patiently clearly laid out so much so that it influenced t.s Eliot, many considered to be the greatest poet of the 20th century in english language that he incorporated it into his famous poem uh, not the, the wasteland. It's the wasteland. That's all through the wasteland. This use of imagery from the tempest, only because it has to do with uh, initiation. So it's uh, it's really dense and deep and fascinating. The whole the whole way the tempest fits in with Bacon and the occult and the empire and Shakespeare. So that really is it. And I talked about like uh, when you kind of cut out last time, just the themes that run through here. It's like art and science, like this art and science of magic. Just yeah. all of these themes of yeah. magic, sleep, hypnotism. Yeah. Like she falls asleep. You mentioned that. Like it's really, it's like all the thing. And then this magic, he has control over everybody. He wants everybody obedient to his will. He's vengeful. And that's really the real tempest, right? There's the real tempest, which is this storm. But the Tempest is this relationship using magic with everybody else. That's my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. You know, it's, re it's about control, having absolute control. Prospero plays God. The Gnostics want to dethrone God because they think they have that right. They actually think it's their mission. Bacon very clearly states, I've said on some of the other episodes, um, that that his ambition is to conquer the entire universe. And I can't believe, you know, he gets away with, with saying that in his most famous work of philosophy. He calls it a, a, a natural ambition. I have the quote here somewhere. I read it. I actually read it on your show once already. Uh, to conquer the entire universe. And I think that that's what modern science has become. Right. Sadly can you, enough. Can you tie in kind of transhumanism and the quest for immortality and why that plays into Bacon in this play? So the Rosicrucians, one of their first statements they make in their manifestos is that their goal is uh, eternal life, to not die, to end all disease is actually how they say it, to end death and disease. And that is the exact goal of transhumanism. And it ties directly into the Gnostic idea of dethroning god and taking control of life and death sort of the i call it the modern gnosticism scientific gnosticism whereas the older gnosticism was concerned with gaining gnosis or knowledge so that when you died your soul could pass through the realms of the archons that were guarding the planet and your soul would be set free and wouldn't have to come back to this prison but modern gnosticism scientific gnosticism as invented by bacon is about using science to gain control of the planet now and to gain eternal life and therefore cheat death so that you don't have to come back. Or really, it's, it's ironic, but they're, they're trying to take control of this place they're calling the prison with science. And their key goal is life extension, which Bacon was very interested in. And it's kind of a key goal 
of uh, you know the Ray Kurzweil's and the transhumanist movement, they really think they don't ever have to die by things like constant organ transplants. And Jared Kushner just wrote a book and was interviewed, and it's on the website, thehiddenlifeisbest.com. It's, it's near the very top of the page. But Jared Kushner says he thinks he's the last generation to die or the first generation to live forever. Therefore, he's trying to stay in shape. And he believes that a lot of that comes from organ transplants. So a lot of science right now is involved in creating artificial organs out of stem cells, which I also mentioned in the last episode of the podcast, or pulling organs out of animals and transplanting them. Also uh, creating fake wombs and, and embryos out of stem cells. Like they, they're desperate to create humans without the need for procreation. That's what the kind of power they want. That's what the transhumanists want. And it's very creepy and very eerie. And at the same time, you know, for our own good, they want to implant technology into us so they can kind of keep track of us for our own good so that they can kind of control everything. They want this. They, they can be Prospero. They want, really to be, they want to be they Prospero, want to be, right? That's a good point. They want to be Prospero. Yeah. And they can't, they, every, you know, they're always stymied. Like GMOs never quite work. Like this horrible vaccine didn't really work. Like things just aren't, aren't really working. Driverless cars don't really work. Like, there are limits. They, they are making incredible progress. And I'm not denigrating. And there are good things that come out of science. But what I see happening is that they're, they're showing us the good things so that we approve of it and then desperately, really in front of our eyes, you know, trying to just gain massive amounts of control, you know, blanketing the skies with the satellites to watch every single movement on the planet. You know, they want the world. Bacon wanted the world. He came, he, he said as much. He just stated it very clearly. And the remarkable thing is he, he made this prediction, it's true. The Rosicrucians predicted that a great change was upon the world. The world was on the cusp of a great change. And in fact, it did. And Bacon is considered the beginning of the Enlightenment. He started the scientific revolution. The world is a completely different place. And he predicted it. And he made it happen. And we have to just be aware of it. And I really think the Great Reset is a culmination of the transhumanist Rosicrucian science movement, really the culmination of the British Empire. And they're trying to just coalesce using this science to get the original goal, which is to conquer the planet. And then a lot of people think, you know, eventually it's to go off planet, the breakaway civilization. That's what all this Mars junk is about and moon junk. And like they can't get really get to the moon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> talk about the Mars. I don't think they made it to the moon. I don't think they're going to make it to the moon, but they keep saying that, right? I think now they're saying we're going to put a man on the moon by 2025. Like really just crazy, crazy talk. Or we're going to go to Mars. It's just completely crazy. The, 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 what it would take Hardly, to get to Hardly, Mars. Yeah. Just incredible. Way beyond any capacity we have. It's just preposterous to think we could send people to Mars to start building, you know, a civilization there. 
it's ridiculous, but they plant these ideas into people's minds. And, you know, we're, we're kind of simple creatures. We're believing creatures. And we believe these stories. They make them feel good. And we turn off our critical thinking, our discernment. And, you know, they want to put implants in us to, for our own good. And, we'll, you know, a lot of us will do that. But just don't do it. They're, they're already doing it. They're already doing it. They're already doing it. Yep. And we have to speak up against it. And we have to take back, you know, some kind of control over this breakaway science scheme that the empire is, is foisting on us. And I think that's really what, what my podcast is about, but it's also about knocking Shakespeare down and exposing it as this, this social engineering to build up the empire and make the empire look good. And the empire is really about control, and it seems to be about humanism and beauty, but it's, it's anything but. And there's something other than that. And I think there's an interesting point in The Tempest where Prospero takes off his cloak and the other characters he's controlled, their personalities have changed. And it shows that that element of social engineering is in the yeah. play. It's, yeah. it's wrought into the play because yeah. he splits up these people into class groups and then manipulates some spies on them, aerial spying on them, right? They're trying to stab people. Exactly. I mean, all kinds of things going on that are all exact themes of things today with the technocratic technotronic era where you get spied on all the time. I mean, it's really something exactly. studying us. Yeah. He's studying them like lab animals and we're being treated yeah. and studied like lab animals. So. Absolutely. And Bacon yeah. studied us and Bacon did learn about us and they did learn very deeply about the individual psychology and the group psychology. And, and that's in the Shakespeare plays. It was Bacon wanted a science of uh, human emotions and they say he never did it, but People are saying, well, that's what the Shakespeare plays are. Yeah, that's Hamlet, it. right? Yeah. And you said that his, his name is a play on Hamlet, right? So yeah. Bacon Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much here. It's, uh, yeah. it's overwhelming and daunting, but I'm trying to do it piece by piece, uh, little by little, episode by episode. And I hope to try to make it entertaining and interesting and historical, but contemporary. I think it really resonates as you just pointed out with, so, yeah. with right now yeah and yeah and it just the more you look into the plays and analyze them individually like we've done Macbeth we've done this we've done him but you just see the the enormous references that one guy in some rural town that, that there's really no history of uh I did Mark Twain's yeah. kind of analysis yeah. of Shakespeare there's just yeah. no way in heck this no. person put that together now all of the occultism the no. masonry, no. Impossible. There's not a single letter uh, anyone ever wrote to Shakespeare. Yeah. He never wrote a single letter. His daughter couldn't read. He didn't yeah. own any books in his final will. Nobody in the town of Stratford knew he was a playwright. It's just completely preposterous. Yeah, when you really get into plays. it. it it be, it's like studying the moon landing yeah. or some of these other places. Once you like, oh, man, there's no way they could fake it. Oh, this is fake. This is fake. Wow, they faked it. And so <laughs> then you go back and you have to go, man, they faked a lot in history. We were told to hold. Every, and, you know, back in the day, I think you mentioned it, one of the early ones. Like, if you question Shakespeare's authority or authorship, oh, yeah. you're a freaking heretic. You're a lunatic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you were shouted down. They, yeah. they effectively squelched debate. I mean, the British people 
are very uh, very heavily controlled. They they supported the empire. You just you've never heard any criticism. You know they're they're raping India, Ireland, selling opium to the Chinese. I mean nobody ever said, hey, wait a minute, why why are we doing this? Why don't we leave them alone? It just it just seemed natural and normal and the, the queen, right thing the to queen do. was still still authority over until she died authority over thirty five commonwealths. All yeah, this, that's her land. It's still it's she's still intact. I mean, apparently she fired yeah. the Australian prime minister in the nineteen seventies, according to yeah, this, yeah. this thing I heard recently. Well, they all the prime ministers act at her will. They can be elected or put in there, but uh, she has final veto. Yep. Yeah, final veto. Yeah, I don't like you. You're gone. I guess it's he, he now. Oh, he right. Sorry, whatever. Charles. <laughs> well, he's the king, right? Okay, right. They have to ask him, but. I've heard the same thing that all of the land in England is actually owned by her, and you can say you have ownership, but she can retract that ownership at any time. So it's free market to a point. Exactly. Well, here's one thing I'll just leave you with the bacon saying dramatic poetry, which has the theater for its world, would be as of excellent use if it were sound. It was carefully watched by the ancients that it might improve mankind in virtue. And indeed, many wise men and great philosophers have thought dramatic poetry to the mind as the bow to the fiddle. And certain it is that the minds of men in company with each other are more open to affections than when alone. So theater to the mind is as the bow to the fiddle. And he knew that. And I just saw this quote by Plato that says, uh, whoever tells the story, you know, controls the world or controls the city. Um, so he knew that. And he studied the ancient myths. And he created these new myths to mold England into the empire. And then the whole myth of Shakespeare as itself was its own myth. The whole story of how the plays got created. So there's a, a great myth. And, and smaller myths within it that I'm, I'm convinced actually created the English empire. No, I it's, totally it's, agree. It's, a, it's an important component. The King James Bible and the Shakespeare works, the folios, were essential in solidifying English control. Part of the language, part of the art and culture, that was it. And it Absolutely. Absorbs, it absorbs people into it. Look at how many people in America aren't even... Anglo-Saxon or aren't from there, but they know Shakespeare. They know the language yeah. of that. All over the world. He invented 1700 words. Right. Look at Kurosawa. Have you ever seen Ron? Yeah. It's amazing. It's clean King Lear, but it is incredible. Yeah. So it, it's went all the way around. Everybody all, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Here it is. Those who tell the stories rule society. Plato. He must have read that. I mean, he knew, he knew all this. This was all conscious. It didn't happen by accident. Bacon knew he was this was his great genius, insane genius, I think, but just uh, almost incomprehensible genius. What the what the level. other thing is that it the folios dropped intact. There's no like nobody went back and rewrote them. They just dropped. Like here's the Shakespeare plays. Have fun. Like it's incredible. <laughs> like but I tinker around with my books, or somebody adds something else, or finishes another act. Well, no, actually, there were tinkered with. They have. Oh, were they? they? They have the original folios from the plays, and that's one of the mysteries is that in the first folio, uh, I think there's 18 plays had never been seen before. 
I don't, I'm not even sure they were performed. I'm not, I'm not an expert in that area, but that some of the plays have been substantially added to and, the, and, and Shakespeare was dead. William was dead. Oh, wow. so it must've been Bacon. The Earl of Oxford was dead. And then the other fascinating part of this is this uh, tussle about who really wrote Shakespeare. The people that have realized that it wasn't William of Stratford, the man from Stratford. And there's kind of this battle going on between the Earl of Oxford camp and the Bacon camp. And there's a few others. Marlowe did it. And I think it was a group. But, um, yeah, no, there was, there was rewriting. That was one of the myths, that he, he never blotted a line. Uh, but, no, it was the plays were, were substantially rewritten for the first folio. <clears throat> and the first folio contains a lot of gematria and placements and page numbers are important. They were using a lot of uh, occult symbolism within the first folio. Interesting. Yeah, it's all it's all multiple layers. And then uh, because Bacon was so fascinated by secret codes, people go in and try to pull out secret messages from the first folio, and it leads them on some real wild goose chases. And I don't get involved with that. I don't personally like puzzles very much. But there's been some funny stories of people going off and, and digging somewhere and uh, not finding anything or other times like finding things. It looks like something was here, but it got removed. And in that um, cracking the Shakespeare code, this Freemason from Norway, who's brilliant, claims to have cracked crack the code via the stars and he goes to Oak Island. So there's this Oak Island off the coast of Nova Scotia where people think a lot of Shakespeare stuff is buried based on these codes. And they actually have found stuff there. Like the mystery just gets crazier and crazier when you, when you tack in Oak Island and that's all in that documentary. So it just goes on and on and on and on. It's fascinating. Lachlan asks who's, who was pushing Shakespeare as real? I mean, wasn't it pushed right from Everyone. the beginning? Yeah. Oh, right from the beginning because of the first folio. So right after Shakespeare died and Bacon died and the first Foley was out, England went into civil war. So everything came to a halt and England was a mess. And playwrights were forgotten. And by the way, nobody knew who the playwrights were in those days. I mean, I defy almost anyone to name three television writers. They can name probably 100 television actors and movie actors. But very few people know screenwriters or television writers. And it was the same back then. The playwrights were not stars. The actors were stars, just like today. So nobody even thought to ask who was William Shakespeare. And it wasn't until the early 1700s that someone thought, hmm, who was this guy Shakespeare? And they started looking, and they would go to Stratford. And this is in... Uh, I don't know, Diana Price or Cracking the Shakespeare Code, they went up there and they made a monument to Shakespeare in, in the local church in Stratford. And, they, and this is a whole other area of authorship research, which there's a great book called Who Wrote Shakespeare? It's probably the best and most accessible book on this. I forget the author's name, maybe Mitchell. And he goes through like what happened and how the myth got developed. But nobody cared for like 100 years. I think it was 1720. Bacon died in 1620. Shakespeare died in 1616. It was 100 years before anyone even thought 
to look into who this guy was because nobody cared. And then the myth got promulgated and blown way out of proportion in the Victorian era. Uh, I, I forget the actual turn of events where, where Shakespeare was thought to be like divine, the divine William, they called him. This incredible creation. And that's when this myth really took hold that, that this commoner became this great, great genius who just loved humanity. And even to this day, people think he was, he was purposely subverting you know, the Tudor aristocracy with these secret messages for humanity, you know, to, to free the world, which is preposterous because it's actually the opposite. It was all meant to consolidate the Tudor aristocracy and consolidate the English people and create the empire, which is anything but, but freedom loving. But they did somehow create this, this myth of the divine William and it didn't start to crack until an American woman in 1850 named Delia Bacon, no relation, who is a great hero. She actually lived in New York for a while. She was a playwright studying Shakespeare. And she was the first one that said, wait a minute, there's no, no commoner from Stratford wrote these plays. And I refuse to believe that they were, they were popular amongst common people. I just refuse to believe that. So she went on a deep dive and she wrote a book about it and the controversy started raging in the late 1800s about who really wrote Shakespeare and that's when Mark Twain discovered the controversy and got involved in it and he wrote his book in 1906 uh, is Shakespeare dead and he woke up quick and he was pissed because uh, Mark Twain is a commoner genius and anytime anyone said this man from Stratford didn't write the plays. They were hit with like, you know, like today, you're like, oh, you're a hater. You don't like commoners. You don't believe in genius. You don't think a common person could be a genius. And that's not true at all. As Mark Twain points out without calling himself a genius, he says, yeah, commoners are geniuses, but they write what they know. Like Mark Twain wrote about growing up on the Mississippi where he grew up and he grew into a great genius as a, as a commoner. It is possible. That's not the point. The point is that it doesn't look like William Shakespeare could even write. There's only six examples of his writing. They're all signatures. Three of them are on his will, and they're all totally different. And in his will, he didn't have any books, and his daughter couldn't read, and he didn't write any letters. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. That it's impossible that this guy, who needed to speak at least three or four languages to write the plays, had to read Latin, had to know Italian because the plots are based on Italian plays that weren't translated or based on old Latin stories from Rome that, that hadn't been translated into English. Right. And this guy didn't, even, there's no record that he ever went to school. I don't think the real William Shakespeare could read. It's incredible. It's, yeah. It's just hard to believe, but if, once you really look into it, you will just slow, you move away from the whole William Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon is, is the guy. Well, I think the dam finally broke because a woman named Diana Price wrote a very scholarly detailed book called uh, New Evidence for the Shakespeare Authorship Problem. And she says, let's, let's do this scientifically, you know, pun not intended. And she went back and she examined, okay, let's take 10 playwrights and let's see what we know about them. And Every one of the other playwrights, because this is one of the arguments people said, well, we don't know anything about anyone from that era. 
uh, she's proved that that wasn't true, that every other playwright, you have at least a record of their writing of the play, a record of them getting paid to write the play, a record of someone from their actual time period saying they knew them as a playwright. And there's just none of that for Shakespeare. Zero. Nothing. It's the weirdest thing. And right. they did Especially manage to... that output. Like somebody never saw that output. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I guess I acted as an actor for this guy, this weirdo from Stratford-on-Avon. Right. right. I was this character called Hamlet I'd never heard of. Right. And then I turned out to be a huge hit or, you know, just something. Yeah, Not, none of that. There, there's evidence that he was an actor and there's evidence that he had a percentage of the theater of the globe. He was around and he was a real person. But this is all fascinating because his name wasn't Shakespeare. It was Shakespeare. But the idea is that Bacon changed it to Shakespeare because his muse was the goddess Athena, who's the goddess of arts and theater and war. And that she was known as the spear shaker. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. Yeah, and you can see all her pictures of her are with the spear. Yeah, she always has a spear. Always has a spear. And they, apparently she would shake it at ignorance. And in fact, the, there was a huge statue of her outside Athens. And the, and the spear would appear to shake at certain, when it would caught certain rays of the sun. And then the Eleusinian mysteries were in Athens. And then, of course, you know, Athens is really the source of our civilization. And, and there was a great Greek empire and then the Roman empire. And Bacon wanted to make London you know, the third great empire. And he did. He pulled it off and he used theater. It's part life. of it. Theater yeah. is part of it. Big, just big part, part of it. No, yeah, just as Rome did. The intellectual yeah. kind of change before and after Shakespeare is huge. So they solidified the language, especially yeah. think about it and it's not alone, but within the context of other historical events. The creation of the King James Bible was also huge. So these are huge. two tremendous events. Right back to back each other, right all overlapping. So, have you heard not, about the forty-sixth Psalm? No, what's that? So, this is a big clue. Besides some of the graphics that were in the King James Bible, which have kind of Rosicrucian and Baconian tie-ins, uh, the forty-sixth Psalm. If you count forty-six words from the first word, and forty-six words from the last word. The first word you come to is shakes, 46 words in, shake, and then 46 words in from the last word is spear. 46, 46, and 46, and you get Shakespeare. And those are the kind of a number games that Bacon liked to play as part of their code-breaking things. But you can look that up. That's look up for Shakespeare, 46 Psalm. And you'll come to it. It's, it's all over the internet. And it's just incredible. Robert, I got another interview in a 10 minutes. Um, okay. what, how would you like to leave this? Do you have anything to add? Anything like to anything I missed? Or where can people listen to your show? I think you've got uh, seven. Well, check it out. Uh, Apple Podcasts or Spreaker. It's The Hidden Life is Best or Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. There's seven episodes up. You can start at the first one, which gives an overview of Bacon's life. The whole Tudor era is fascinating. Uh, I've become a, very interested in that. And then the website 
for some uh, links for some of the evidence for all this stuff I'm talking about is thehiddenlifeisbest.com. Thehiddenlifeisbest.com. And yeah, have fun with it. It's really fascinating and see how it ties into our present, our present world. And beware, you know, beware contemporary science and the great reset and don't yeah. get microchipped and uh, love your neighbor. Yeah, amen to that. And again, it's Robert Frederick, The Hidden Life is Best, and we went over his analysis of The Tempest. And I'll put links in the show notes so people can check it out. So, Robert, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, William. All right, take Thanks care. a lot. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there. All right, I got to...